with that, uh, would you quiet your hearts as we now prepare to hear God's Word? And let's ask God for light this morning. Blessed you are, Lord, great God. Blessed you are, eternal God, in times past and yet even today. You have spoken in the past and your people have been guided through all kinds of wildernesses and supported in all kinds of exiles and tribulations. We pray that you will speak to us today in the midst of our own peculiar confusions. Speak to us through your law and give us a sense of order and direction in a time that seems often filled with chaos. Speak to us through your gospel Transform us by your grace, renew us in hope, for yours is the future, even more than the past, and we place our trust in you. Speak to us, in Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We made it to chapter 2 of Genesis, so we're, we're moving along slowly, but it's so much, and we'll be in chapter 2 for a while Uh, because there's so much here about who we are. But we're still not there. We're not really talking about humanity so much as we are still talking about God. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, hear now the word of the Lord. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work He had been doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all His work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Anyone here uh, know the name Johnny Vandermeer? Anybody? Zinnaker back there, you know that? Yeah, yeah, you know that. Punter, you got that one? No, that's, that's, you're not that old, are you? You're close, buddy. Elliot, nothing? My base? No, they don't know Johnny Vandermeer? Come on. So Johnny Vandermeer was a ball player. He was a major league pitcher in the 30s and 40s. He was a lefty. He was a pretty good ball player. He pitched for the Cincinnati Reds. And he, has, he holds a record, which I think is probably safe to say unbreakable, always dangerous to do that, but anybody know what his famous major league record is? Who's, who said that? Ah, George, nice. He pitched back-to-back no-hitters, okay? That ain't going to happen, <laughs> given the way pitching is today. So he pitched back-to-back no-nos. That's pretty amazing. Now, you know what denomination Johnny Vandermeer was part of? Probably guessed by the last name, right? Yeah, he was part of the Christian Reformed Church. Johnny Vandermeer came out of Midland Park, New Jersey. One of his nicknames was the Dutch Master. But uh, Johnny got himself in trouble in church uh, because of another no-no. You want to guess what that was? Well, you all know that one, right? You remember that part of our tradition? <laughs> yeah, he was playing baseball on Sundays, and that was a no-no. And the church, and many in the church, didn't like that fact. Um, Calvin Saval, he wrote an article about, uh, he's got a little page all about Johnny Vandermeer, and he wrote an article about him and uh, talked about how Johnny's sister really struggled and how she said how 
really horrible the church uh, was to Johnny because of that. And also his friend, his head of friend, uh, Dick Jeffers, who was uh, his childhood friend, also in the CRC, uh, became an organist in the church. And, uh, you know, he talked a lot about the hypocrisy, about, you know, the, how the CRC people would go watch the Sabbath desecrators, but they'd still get mad at, at Johnny about playing ball on Sunday. And he even shared a, a story about, uh, you know, you got to remember this time, too, this base, the United States was baseball crazy in the 30s and 40s. It isn't like it is now. And Jeffers tells this little story. He says, I'll tell you how baseball crazy we were in those days when Johnny would be pitching in either the polo grounds or Ebbets Field. An usher would go to his car and tune into a radio station. They didn't broadcast the games, but would give the scores on the top of the hour. He would then write it down on a piece of paper and bring it to me at the organ on Sundays. You know, so he was getting, he was, you know, people find their way around. There are many controversial issues among Christians. We all know that. We debate about a lot of things, right? We debate about baptism, infant baptism versus believer or adult baptism. We debate about uh, salvation. We have people who are Calvinists and we have people who are Arminian. We debate the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, between the secessionists and the non-secessionists, right? So there's all these type of debates. And certainly one of those debates throughout the church's history has been whether there is a Sabbath day anymore for Christians, right? Does the fourth commandment apply to us? Do we have a Sabbath as Christians? And even if we can agree on whether we have one or not, there's a lot of disagreement about that, we disagree on how to observe that. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? How does that play out in our lives? Greg Beale, as he dealt with this issue in one of his books, said the issue of the Sabbath has been and continues to be vigorously debated, and that is true. And this morning, I want to enter into that debate, weigh in on it a little bit. You might be able to guess what side I'm going to come in on it on, but uh, I do think there is a Sabbath for the people of God, for Christians. But I want to approach the topic a little unconventionally. That might not surprise you. Uh, you know, often, most often, when this debate is had in the church, the whole focus is on the fourth commandment, right? We know that commandment. We heard it read this morning. And the question is all about law. Is the fourth commandment applicable to Christians? And the debate centers around there. And my concern with that, my frustration with that, is I think it gives us a bit of tunnel vision about the Sabbath, about the Lord's Day. I think we, in focusing there myopically, we miss the broader, beautiful, bigger, biblical, theological, all-encompassing, comprehensive nature of the Sabbath, how it really goes from Genesis to Revelation, Alpha to Omega, the fullness of God's revelation. So this morning, I want to give you two reasons why you should keep the Sabbath. Next week, I'll do part two of this. I'll talk about how, about some practices, some guidelines. I'll do the application. But this morning, I want to talk about why, why you should desire to keep the Sabbath. I've got two reasons, and neither of them has anything really to do with the fourth commandment. So let's talk about the Sabbath and why you should keep the Sabbath. And the first reason for that is what we're in right now. It's because of creation. Why should you keep the Sabbath? Reason number one, creation. 
Now, through this series, we have talked about a variety of themes, various different themes that come up in Genesis chapter 1, in the creation account. We talk about God's Word, right? The Word of His power. We've talked about form and filling, how God created these spaces and how He filled those spaces, that rulers and and realms, that idea. We talked about order being brought out of chaos, how God did that. We talked about image and image bearing last week, about how we are God's representatives. We talked about temple and temple building, how creation is in a sense a temple. And among all these themes that are there, really an array of them, a vast array, among all those themes of Genesis 1 and 2 of this early creation account, among them is the theme of work and rest. That cadence, that rhythm, that theme of work and rest. And as we look at, and as we've talked about before, right, there are other ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, and this theme emerges in those as well, most particularly in the Babylonian cosmology, the Enuma Elish. That theme of work and rest is there, but it comes up in a very different way. There, in that story, and I won't belabor this too long, but there's a, the, the account is about how the gods are, can't get any rest because the other gods are noisy. It's like, kind of like you know, parents with their children who won't go to bed. They, they want a night's rest, and they can't get a night's rest because they have this problem. There's too much noise, and they're trying to get rest. They're trying to get sleep, and, and even they create humanity. Humanity's created in that account to do basically slave labor for the gods so that the gods can go on vacation, so that they can rest. That's kind of how it's all brought up in that account. But the Genesis account is so very different in this regard. As we begin this account, as you see, as I've mentioned, it's just God. One God. God is not struggling or wrestling with other gods. He's not entering rest because, you know, there's noisy gods around him. He doesn't create humanity to be his slave labor so he can take a vacation. He creates them to be his representatives, to co-labor with him. Humans are called uh, to join into that rest of God, not to give God rest. The whole account here in Genesis, as I've just read, is about God resting of his own accord. He works, he rests in his own power and for his own purposes. So you see, if you read this account, what comes to you is the reality that the Sabbath didn't begin with Old Testament Israel. It didn't begin in the fourth commandment. It began here in creation, in the origins, here in the beginning. It began on the seventh day when God rested. That's where the Sabbath began. Now, have you ever thought about God resting on the seventh day? Have you ever thought to yourself, why did God rest? Right? It's kind of a good question, right? Why did God rest? I, I kind of uh, you did a little bit of uh, searching about that and what people think about that. I made the, the mistake of going to Reddit. <laughs> don't, 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 don't go to Reddit for your theology, please. <laughs> And there were a lot of, there actually were some pretty good jokes in there about it, but uh, most of them would get me canceled, so I'm not going to tell you about them. But there's kind of like this sense of mockery, right? Like, oh, you know, this this God of the Bible, I guess, the rest, you know, it's like, does God get tired? Did he get exhausted by that? And of course, that's not the case. 
So then why did he do it? Now, some people say, well, he did it to model something for us, that it's about us, right? He was trying to teach us. He loves us so much he wanted to teach us how to rest. Well, there's something to that, I think. There is a modeling there for us, no doubt about it, but I don't think that's really it either. Remember, we're not even on the scene pretty much here as God enters his rest, right? This is the creation week. It's focused upon God, and I believe the Sabbath is primarily about God, not about you and me. So why did God rest? I think there's a very simple reason why God rested that the Bible presents us. It's that He was done. He was done with His work. You see, the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is about punctuating the completeness, the perfection of what God had done. His work is finished completely. No loose ends at all. That's what it's about. The Hebrew word for Sabbath, Shabbat, it really is less about rest and more about ceasing. It's about the ending of something, the completion of something. It is, you know, when we think about rest, right, we think about rest often, and this is kind of the problem we have in translating. We think about it as kind of physical exhaustion, something we do because we're just wasted, right? We, we rest, but that's not really the idea of Genesis. Genesis, when it talks about rest, is talking about ceasing, talking about it because of completion, God's work was done. It was completely done. It was perfectly done. It was very good. It was wrapped up and tied up in a bow. It was complete, and so God ceased. It's a way of punctuating that point. Listen to the New English translation. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. By the seventh day, God finished the work He had been doing, and He ceased on the seventh day all the work He had been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He ceased all the work He had been doing in creation. Why did God rest on the seventh day? Because He was done. He was done with His work, and it was very good. Have you ever had that experience of completed work? When I was an attorney, we would, we, you know, one of the, your, your duties was that you, every month you got a stack on your desk. It was your bills, right? Your, your, and, it, and it was called WIP. You got your WIP report, and it meant work in progress. And what the firm was trying to tell you is we want you to finish this because we can bill it, right? You, this is where it states, this is where this, the status of this is. It's whip, it's work in progress, it's not done. And so often I felt that way. As a lawyer, there's always these cases you can't bring to a close. And, you know, and when you finally finish something and you get that decree, right, and it's done, done, and it feels so good. You ever had that sense? So much of life feels undone. So many things I think about as a pastor, right? You know, you, you just kind of ache for those things where you could say, it's, it's good, it's done, it's finished. You ever feel like that? It's like one of the reasons I like to mow my lawn, right? Because when I'm done with it, it's done. I realize it grows back again and I got to do it again. But there's that sense of, it looks good. One of the greatest joys of writing a book, right, is the time you get the book sent to you when it's done, right? You go through all that writing and all that editing and all that frustration, and you end up thinking about the hours you put into this project, and then comes the book bound, done, 
finished. You ever feel that way? Well, that's the glory of creation. God finished His work. It was good. It was done, done. And so He rests to mark, to punctuate that point of its completeness, its goodness, its finished. That's glorious. The seventh day, the day of perfection, it is good, it is finished, it is very good. The superlative is there. But there's more to it than just that. And it goes to the idea of what was the work God was doing. There's something even more beautiful and powerful if we kind of unfold the flower of what's being told to us here a little bit more, let it widen for us. You see this beauty of what really happened here on the seventh day and why we want to celebrate it. And it relates to what God was building. I talked to you last week about the image of God and how in the ancient Near East you would put an image of the God in the temple, that the, that the house that was built for the God, right? And I talked to you that's who we are, that's what God did with us, it's part of our image-bearing nature is to be representatives of Him, His image in His temple. And what I was talking about is that creation itself is a cosmic temple. But the tabernacle and the temple, the earthly houses of God, they were mere microcosms of this creation temple. And God keeps telling Israel, you're going to build me a house? I don't need you to build me a house. Because my house is all creation. The work that God was doing in those six days was building Himself a house. And it was this glorious creation house. And what happens on the seventh day is God moves in. Show that slide again, if you would, of the, the kind of cosmology here. Remember this picture of how God created these spaces and how that mimics what we see in the tabernacle, right? The outer court, we have, then we have the holy place and the most holy place, and the most holy place is heaven. And what is heaven? The dwelling place of God. God engages for six days in this great cosmic temple building work. And then on the seventh day, He takes up residence. He ascends to His throne. It's a moment of enthronement and glory. The God rests in His temple. And every time in the ancient Near East when they would build a temple, that was the idea that when it was completed, God would take residence. He would dwell. He would rest in His temple. Well, God did that. But the temple is the entire creation. And on the seventh day, that's what it's about. It's not about God taking a vacation. It's not about Him resting or taking a snooze. He wasn't tired. What He was doing was taking His throne. His cosmic throne. The Sabbath is about the enthronement of God in His cosmic temple. You can take that slide down. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, saying to Israel, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? God asks Israel, where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord. What is God saying? You aren't going to build me a house. You think that little temple in Jerusalem? Look at what I built. The heavens my throne, the earth my footstool. This is my temple. I've taken up residence there. I, that is my resting place. Why did God rest on the seventh day? 
because he had finished the most glorious, amazing temple building project in the history of all creation, right? His work was done and he took up residence in his house and praise be to God for that. And he set apart that seventh day, the only day, by the way, of all the six days, right, of creation. The seventh day is the only one he sets apart, he blesses, he calls holy because it's special, because that is the day upon which he took his throne. And so when we, beloved, when we gather together one day in seven, what we are doing on the Sabbath day is to proclaim that our God is King that He has taken up His throne, that He resides and rules above the universe, that He is in His temple, and we all cry, Holy! Because He's glorious, and He's good, and He's the Lord of the cosmos. That's why we set apart a day. Because of what God has done. The Sabbath is not about denying you something, right? It's not this kind of yoke put upon you. It's a remembrance and celebration of the enthronement of your Creator, your King, your God. It's Psalm 24, right? We get together and we are basically crying out, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord strong and mighty. That's what the Sabbath is about. And that's why you should long and desire to keep the Sabbath because it is the day upon which you celebrate that God is enthroned above all creation. The first reason why you want to keep the Sabbath is because of creation, because of what God has done, what He has built, and where He rules and reigns from, creation. The second reason you want to keep the Sabbath is because of consummation. We've talked about creation, now I want to convince you consummation. Let's go to the other end, right? When we think about the Sabbath, so often people are looking back, looking back to the fourth commandment, looking back even to creation, but the Sabbath pushes us forward. It's futuristic. And when I talk about that word consummation, what I'm talking about is the end of all things. I'm talking about the eschaton. I'm talking not about Genesis, not about Exodus. I'm talking about Revelation. I'm talking about what God is doing in your future and mine and the future of all that He has made. We look forward, not just back, because the Sabbath is not merely temporal. It is eternal. The Scriptures teach that the Sabbath is eternal, and we find clues to that even in the creation account that I was just talking about here we just read from. There are clues in it. That the Sabbath is something that is still out there, that remains for the people of God. It is something futuristic, and we find clues of that in the creation account. Let me just give you two clues in the creation account about this future nature, this eternality of the Sabbath. These little hints. The first clue, we find the days of creation themselves. If you could put up that second slide. 
the days of creation. You've seen this before. I've talked about how the parallelism of the days of creation, right? We got these forms and we got filling. We've got these spheres and they're filled by God. Lights, we have sun and moon, stars, skies and waters are filled with birds and fish. Then we have the land filled by land animals and these days are paired off. But as you can see, what I put up there is that they're each and every one of those six days of creation, it ends with this refrain, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and there was morning the second day, and there was evening and there was morning the third day, and so on and so forth until the sixth day. Now look at the seventh day. Put up the next slide. This is what I just read to you. The seventh day, you see what's missing. The refrain is not there. There is no proclamation, and there was evening and there was morning of the seventh day. Why is that? Because it has no end. It is the day of creation that has no end. The Sabbath goes on. It is intentionally left open-ended because it speaks to something eternal, an eternal rest that God has provided for His people. When will it happen at the end of all things? Eternality. You can take that down. The other clue we find in creation to the eternality of the Sabbath has to do with the two trees that are in the garden. If, I'm jumping ahead a little bit in our story here of Genesis, but you will see soon enough that God plants the humanity in the garden, right? There's male and female in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, and there's these two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Have you ever wondered why there are two trees in the garden? And of course, we all know the story around the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, right? God gives the people a command, right? He gives Adam and Eve this command, don't eat of that tree. That's your work. That's your probation. Don't eat of that tree or you will surely die. But then there's this other tree, the tree of life. What is it? What does it symbolize? It symbolizes life. Now, why do people who know no death, conceivably, right, based on the ostensible story here, right, they don't know death. Death is the punishment for disobedience. Why do they need a tree of life? Because it is put before Adam and Eve that there's something more. This is life. It is good life. You are good and you are upright and you are holy, but you can fall. You can fail in this test. And of course they did. They could fail to keep God's commandment and they would know death. And when they failed to do that, their labor got even harder, right? The sweat of the brow for Adam. Eve has these labor pains, interesting form of words, right? We used to talk about the birthing process, labor. Work gets harder, rest gets harder, right, because of the fall. But there's this tree of life put before them. And it was put before them as saying, if you follow me, if you do the work that I have given you, I have a rest for you. I have a higher state for you, a state from which you cannot fall. A state of life. The tree of life was an invitation, an eternal invitation to enter God's rest. And of course, we know that Adam and Eve failed to enter that rest. And so God brought together a people called Israel. And He told them about this land that He had for them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And He said, in that land, you can find rest. And so Joshua led them into that land. But again, Israel failed to enter its rest. They failed to attain that life. 
Hebrews 4, 8, and 10 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. So then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from His. Adam fails. Joshua fails. And so what do we need, beloved? We need a new Adam. We need a new Joshua. And you know where I'm going and you know the truth of it. Because if you have felt in your life the power of Jesus Christ, then you know who that new Adam and new Joshua is. That second Adam, as Paul refers to Jesus, the second Adam, Joshua, which is the name Jesus, basically save His people from their sins. He comes for a purpose. He comes to do the work that we failed to do. He comes to do God's work, God's will perfectly. He puts God's will before His own. And Jesus gets the job done. Isn't that the truth of the Scripture? Isn't that what it really boils down to? There Jesus and the high priestly prayer in John 17. After Jesus said this, He looked toward heaven and prayed. Now listen to His prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. For You granted Him authority over all all people that He might give eternal life to all those You have given Him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. And then Jesus prays this, I have brought You glory on earth. How did Jesus bring Him glory? Jesus says, by finishing the work You gave Me to do. He finished the work. And it was complete. And it was done, done, right? It was tied up. It was perfect. It was that seventh day perfect work, right? Nothing left, no loose ends. Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. There's no whip, right? It's done perfectly and beautifully. And you see, this is what the Gospel is about. It's about the Lord of glory, the Lord of the Sabbath, as Jesus describes Himself, entering into the cosmic temple of this world, completing the work that God gave Him to do so that His people, so that you and me can enter into our rest, that seventh day eternal rest. And what does Jesus do? He ascends, right? He completes the work and He ascends to the throne, right? It's done. He's enthroned just as the seventh day proclaims about God. Hebrews 11, 10, 11, and 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, when Jesus, the high priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? He's taking his rest. Why? Because there's no more work, beloved. There's no more work. That's why we talk about salvation by grace and not by works. It's not a religious slogan. It's a promise. It's an affirmation that Jesus did it all perfectly for you, for me, for His glory, so that we could enter His rest and He sat down because He is the King of glory. 
And if you read on in the Bible, you come to Revelation chapter 22, and you hear about the glories of the creation temple. Once again, this new creation, this city coming down from heaven. And what do we find there? We find the tree of life. And all those who trust in Christ, all those who rest in Him, partake of that tree of life in an eternal Sabbath. That's the story of the Scripture. That's why we should keep the Sabbath. Because it's a foretaste of the consummation. It's a proclamation of Jesus' completed work of redemption for you and for me. Beloved, the Bible is a story of work and rest. A story about how God invites you into His rest. How He offers you rest. Not as some type of yoke of oppression. Not to deny you something. He offers you a Sabbath because it's a gift. And all you have to do is accept it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. But you do have to embrace it. You do have to come to Him and stop your labors and say to Him, I want to enter your rest. And you know what Jesus will say to you if you do that? What He said in Matthew 11, 28. Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, And I will give you rest. I'll give it to you. Come. Rest in Christ. Enter His rest. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank You so much for the glory and promise of the Lord's day, of the Sabbath of rest. We praise You for Your enthronement as King over all that You have made that this world is your house and you reside and dwell as its king. And we thank you for the completed work of Jesus on our behalf. For those words, it is finished. And we thank you for rest. And I pray for weary and burdened hearts here that they would just come to the giver of rest. In Jesus' name we pray.